Welcome to the podcast dedicated to helping business owners to prepare for exit so you can maximize value and exit on your terms. This is the Exit Insights podcast presented by Succession Plus. I'm Daryl Bates-Brownsort and today I'm talking to Rob Warner. Now Rob sold his business Invisible PPC late last year and I asked him to come on and share his insights around that process and the experience of just getting a business prepared for exit and, and actually going through the process. So welcome, Rob, and thanks for joining me today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, excellent. So, Rob, why don't you just set us up with a little bit of background around the, the business, and, and that, that'll take us into just helping understand the process you went through and what you learned uh, on the journey as a business owner. Absolutely. So so I sold my business. It was a business called Invisible PPC, which was a, which I said was, is a white label digital marketing agency in that it was an agency providing services to other agencies on behalf of them for their clients. Um, I was building that since 2012. So it was getting on towards 10 years. And we'd grown from um, my own sort of near personal bankruptcy in a back office to um, a team of 35, um, hundreds of customers, thousands of agency partners, hundreds of live campaigns at any one time, all over the world. Um, so it kind of grown into far more than it was ever intended to be. On day one when I started it, it with no plan, no intent other than please try and find a way to keep a roof over my head. Um, and we went from that to ultimately right to the top tier of the Google's partner network uh, to, you know, to the point where we were invited out to California to go see the head office, to have meetings there and do stuff. Um, so we, went, we had a good run of that. And over those sort of nine years, I said, we grew to a team of about 35 people by the time we came to exit. Um, but for me personally, I, I describe myself as an accidental agency owner. I'm a software person first and an agency owner second. Agencies are very people intensive. Uh, you know, agencies require lots of hiring, lots of people processes, lots of management, um, lots of client relationship management. And fundamentally, I'm a much better builder and creator than I ever am a people manager or a people person and so for me and I think as an agency owner as well your perspective of the world's a little bit skewed in that what you see you know how it's like you have, you've got a front line of people who directly support your customers they have managers they have a manager and above them sit kind of sits you at this ivory tower and so the the things that are going great stay at the front because that's where they should be. That's where the reality happens. The things that don't go so great gradually trickle up. And so your perception as an agency owner gets this skewed thing of the only thing you see on a day-to-day -day basis is the, is the big hot problems, the fires of the day. So your perception of your own business actually gets quite skewed in a negative way. Because, oh crap, here I go again. Here's, here's today's fire which client's upset, which person's upset. And so I found personally running an agency mentally and emotionally tiring. I take it really personally if somebody's upset, either a client or somebody on my team. I don't like that. That's not what I want people to feel. So it, I've reached the point, um, and COVID was an interesting point. We lost 65% of our business in three weeks during COVID. Wow. And now we grew it back um, over time. But I think for me, um, it was a reflection period of going, do you know what? I didn't mean to do this. I'm, an I'm here by accident. Um, I want to get back to building software. It's probably time for me to hand this on to somebody else. So from 
the germination of the idea of a sale came in sort of, I guess, 2019, although it was, sorry, 2020, um, although it was not something that we actioned. We actually kicked off the process to exit properly as in said, okay, we're going to do this now in the sort of summer of 2021 and we sold and completed in November. So six months-ish. Yeah about, yeah, about five, six months. That seems pretty quick. So, mm. so 35 people, you grew it over 10 years, got some, some global success and, and uh, you know, is a classic British understatement there um, and, and high ranking. So you took it to market or, or you, you knew that you wanted to exit. You, you'd come to the realisation that, that it was time to, I guess, yeah. take the business to the next custodian of the business, uh, of, of the entity, if you like. How, how did you go about that process? That's the bit where you know, business owners are, are, are listening going, okay, so that sounds all good. It's a great backstory. Now, what did he really do and, and how did he maximise the value on that, on that process? So actually, we did, we did a few things that were quite interesting. Um, thing number one um, was because we already had started developing software at this time, we effectively broke our P&L in half. We broke off an element of our P&L that was um, development-related activities and non-agency and then an agency P&L so that anybody looking at us saw a clean agency P&L almost on a pro forma basis. So we, sold, we put it up for sale as an asset sale rather than as a, a legal entity sale because we wanted to keep the development team. We wanted to keep our development resources and like the shared infrastructure. So we, we kept, for example, our accountants, we kept our graphic design people, our software development, our customer support, the rest of it went. But we, we made that separation financially before we put it up for sale. So that was step one was cleaning up the financials for that. Yep. So, so it's like you, you sold just your factory, if you like, your production. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so who, who was the buyer? Was it another agency? It was another agency. Yeah, it was another agency. So we used um, a broker for the sale, um, primarily because we'd already got a software business that was already moving. It was already getting traction. It was only a little part-time thing we were doing as alongside our agency. But I have to describe it. It's like trying to try, you know, Imagine you've got a, a cart horse and a racehorse, and you're trying to ride both at the same time. It's really difficult. Uh, and you kind of need, need to get off one and sit on it properly and ride the thing. And so the thought of actually trying to ride a third horse of this, make, doing an agency exit solo, was just, we just haven't got the bandwidth for that. Okay. So we decided to hire a broker and use them to do all the heavy lifting of finding potential buyers. And how did you find the process compared to what you were expecting the process to look like? Uh, it was, for us, relatively painless, but only in as much as, um, by background, I'm a chartered accountant. So although I don't practice and I haven't practiced for many years, um, we have a solid sort of, um, we have a solid financial understanding as to how to prepare for that. I've been through, in my professional life, several sales and acquisitions. So I, I knew what I was getting myself in for. I would say if you were to rate a, a seller on a scale of one to 10 in terms of experience of doing a sale, I'm not a 10, but I'm a good seven. Okay. So I was much further down the track in terms of preparedness than an average seller would be, okay. recognizing that most people sell their own business, you know, once in their lifetime. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you'd been through the process before you, you had some understanding that you needed to clean up your accounts. You'd already done that. Um, yeah. You'd separated the P&Ls. 
I'm taking from that you also tidied up your PL so you'd done some normalizing. You'd cleaned out, I guess you put all of the discretionary stuff, shall we say, in the yeah. software business. Absolutely. So, um, so an agency or, an, or, a, or a trade sale could come in and have a look at your PL and go, yeah. that's as clean as it's ever going to be. I don't have to make yeah. any more adjustments to that. What I'm buying, that's exactly what I'm getting. And you, yeah. and as you're, because you're, because you're an accountant, you knew how to present those accounts um, in a way and you could talk comfortably talk through them to any yeah. buyers in, in that negotiation process. Exactly. So from my perspective, I say just from my own professional background, I appreciate that I'm better positioned than many would be to get into that. But we still hired a broker. We still took their advice. Um, we didn't hire a consultant because we'd kind of, um, our broker is actually kind of like a quasi-consultant stroke broker. I think he plays the line between the two and i'd already got a relationship with the guy i'd known him for several years so it wasn't like we were going into this cold um, i was very fortunate that i had a network of people i knew who dealt in specifically bought and sold agency businesses yep so to go to them and go hey this is what we're selling are you interested now and of course they know me as well it's like of course i'll sell that for you why wouldn't i um, um so i was able to put together a deal that worked really well for us yeah and without giving away specific numbers, how did the valuation compare? How did the value, how did the buyers um, come up with the valuation? How did it meet, you know, what you were hoping to get? How did you arrive at what you were hoping to get? All these questions on the valuation. So um, I'd uh, done some research before I even went to take the business to market in terms of expectations. And agency, digital marketing agencies, digital agencies in particular, they sell for a range, you know, if you're doing less than 3 million EBIT, you know, the answer to what you're going to get in terms of your multiple is somewhere between one times EBIT and four times EBIT, depending where in that zero to 3 million you are, your level of owner dependency, your level of process build out, you know, and all the sort of things like client concentration, and, uh, retention periods, you're going to be in a one to four range. Yep. We knew because because of the type of our business, we were massively process driven. I hadn't been the CEO for over a year, so I knew it wasn't dependent on me. Because of the nature of our business, white labeling for lots of agencies, we didn't have massive customer concentration. So I knew we got lots of things that would push us up to that, towards the top end of that mark. So without being specific, I knew we were going to be somewhere in the high twos to mid threes, multiples of EBIT was going to be our answer. Yep. Um, and within that, what I, I set I know my own extra criteria in terms of what I was looking for for a buyer, which was I felt a very strong uh, commitment to my team and to my customers. Yep. And so I, the brief I gave the broker was I want the best buyer at a fair price rather than the best buy, best price for the wrong buyer. It had to be somebody who was going to, you know, use the bit, grow the business the way it was intended and not break it for spares, if that makes sense. Uh, totally. And that's always the dilemma owners have. Do I do yeah. I just go for maximum value or do I go for some sort of legacy? With for me as well, I'm staying in this industry. While I've pivoted to software, I'm still selling software to the same community that 12 months ago I was selling agency services. Yeah. Um, if they know that I've done an exit um, and my, cu my customer base on my team got screwed over in that process, 
Now that's not a good look. And uh, I certainly didn't want to be that guy. And I did not want to have to look anybody in the eye and go, yeah, I've done great. I've done great here. I've had a fantastic exit. Sorry you've lost your job or your prices have just doubled, but I'm great. See you later. Buy my software. You know, I wasn't going to do that. So um, that was kind of the brief that we gave. And we ended up, I say, high twos to mid threes was our kind of EBIT multiple that we got. And we got it on a mostly cash basis, which was what we wanted. Nice. With no earn out. That's the uh, the gold standard, isn't it? Uh, no earn out. <clears throat> yeah, so, I, was, I was very keen. So yes, there was a, there was a withheld element, um, but the withheld element was guaranteed, payable over a, a year or so with a PG, yeah. um, which was important to me. So, so you've hit a, checked a number of boxes there. So um, you mentioned that the business was pretty well systemized. Um, so you could demonstrate that the, the business always followed a process, especially helpful for a white label type product. You know, because it was a white label product, you demonstrated you had some specific IP and you know, product architecture in play. You mentioned your staff were running the processes. There are about 35 staff in there. You'd already tidied up all of your financials. By the sounds of it, and this is a question, even though it's going to sound like a statement, um, the the acquirer did they keep your name or did they just fold the business into their existing business? No, they kept the name. So the name the, the name is really well known in the industry. Yep. Uh, and thankfully, it has a good reputation, uh, touching wood. Um, so uh, we we kind of created that part of the industry. So we were kind of synonymous with it. So the buyer recognized that and was, you know, they knew they'd be foolish to throw the name away. So um, yeah, that was, that, that was what they decided to do. And I think it's the right decision. Yeah. So it sounds like you're ticking off all the boxes. We have a, a model that we look at and we go, what are the seven levers to um, multiply and, and maximize value as we, as we take a client through the process? And the first one is we're, we're looking at the revenue streams, you know, and, and the revenue streams. So you've ticked that. We then look at the staff and how loyal staff are and, and, and how many staff are running the business and does the business require the owners to be there? And it sounds like you are coaching the, the, the business and you weren't involved in a operational management role. So another big tip. Hey, hey, on that one, we use project management software. I, I can't use project management software to save my life. So the chances of me being operationally useful are near zero. So big tick there. The next one is about process. How how consistent are the processes? And you were talking about, hey, look, the the more the business was evolving, the the less visibility I had of what's really going on at the ground the ground floor level. I had an idea, but because there's a couple of layers, I'm a little disconnected. So process, giving a consistent process is the next lever. And those first three levers are what we see normally. Um, help a business or, or protect the value of an organization to make sure they at least get that standard, you know, one to four multiple, whatever your industry. Yeah. Exactly. The, the next three um, or the next four, four of the, the seven levers are the ones that we can start tweaking to maximize the value to get you closer to that threes and in the fours in your industry. It could be 10 or 12 in other industries. Um, so after process, we start to go, what's the specific IP? Have you got product IP, product architecture? So the clients are buying the product rather than the clients buying your time or the time yeah. of people in your organization. Then we've got, what are our routes to market? Do we have multiple channels and, and access to market? Um, and then we talk about, you know, brand. And you already mentioned that 
hey, we started this angle of the industry. So our brand was well known and we had a great reputation. So that's the sixth lever. And the seventh lever is scale. So what do we have to do to scale our business? Have we got a plug and play business model now where we've got the, the, the franchise prototype as I think Gerber calls it. And then now I can just you know, replicate this and plug it into other locations, which is the opportunity, if I'm understanding correctly, that you left on the table for the oh, new buyer. We, we left massive opportunities on the table. I mean, Beautiful. for me, a fast, clean exit was more important than absolute value maximization. Uh, and, and here's the trade-off I was playing. And if you look, if you rewind to last sort of summer and autumn, we're growing a SaaS business when a SaaS typically sells for five to 10x revenue while selling an asset that's worth three times EBIT. It makes no sense focusing on, you know, getting a hundred dollars of extra revenue in a hundred dollars of extra valuation in the agency when $100 of revenue in my SaaS gives me $500. It's like, this, this is crazy math. So we, for us, speed was important, but we left massively. I mean, the things that we left on the table knowingly is, A, the business was in a, in a downward path for revenue. We'd taken our eye off the ball. I wasn't interested. And so it was, don't get me wrong, it wasn't moving downward much, but it certainly wasn't a growing thing. Had I chosen to, we could have spent the first three quarters of that year turning that line around and we could have and we would have done it without too big an issue but we chose not to do it so you know selling a declining multiple is a hell of a lot harder than selling a growing multiple so that so that was money left on the table yep and did the buyers quiz you on that yeah they, they knew i said look honestly you said you can see what i'm building it's over here it's, it's for sale i care about this i i i'm less emotionally now invested in this and i can't spend my time in both places so we're now, I've got to pick that horse and start riding. So one of them is getting neglected. And um, did they try and drive the price down as a result? Uh, I think the, pl the price we've got reflected the drive down of that, absolutely. Yeah, okay. Uh, and then that was fine. We were prepared and ready for that. But we, it's, you know, it's cost us multiple six figures. And I can't pretend it hasn't. And, you know, that, that's given that took me nine years to build that. That was definitely money left on the table. I think the other thing was we offered one specific service, which was, you know, Google Ads management. Our buyers and our customers were desperately asking for Facebook Ads management for search engine optimization and other services, which we just never got round to building out. Reversing those into any agency that has any one of those three services with our customer list, they could immediately go, white label your Facebook ads, white label your SEO, white label list, and 50 to 100% increase the revenue within a quarter if they chose to. Yeah. So there was a massive opportunity for the right buyer there to just walk their service into our customer base, leverage the know, like, and trust and the reputation and upsell extra service. So we knew that we were missing that opportunity, but it was like, again, do we invest time there or do we keep building SaaS? And it was let's keep building SaaS. And, and it, it is a dilemma, as you say, but if we, if we know what the opportunities are and we spec them out for the next buyer, as, as you are identifying there, for the right buyer, that's a massive opportunity. They'll pay more for your business yeah. because they see that opportunity and easy money to get uplift and for them to get a return. So when we're working with clients, as we, you, know, you, you, know, you want to maximize what you've got and maximize the value and the return naturally but you also want to leave something on the table for the buyers to mop up 
so that they get value as well and they can get a quick return or a, you know, a less risky return on, on their acquisition. Absolutely. And, for, and we knew this thing. So for us, we had a very uh, strange due diligence process. Okay. Um, in as much as, if you think about the financials are quite straightforward to do due diligence on. You can see them as a profile PL. We broke down it. I mean, we're an agency. We have, we've been remote since day one. So there's no equipment, there's no leases, there's no buildings. It's a, here's a bunch of people on the payroll and here's how much you pay them. Here's a bunch of software that we pay for on a monthly basis. And there's some revenue. <laughs> That's your financial due diligence. But it's not complicated. So um, when it came down to then technical due diligence, we were in a weird position where we knew far more technically about what we were doing than the buyer did. Mm -hmm. um, and it, one thing was a standout from that process, which was I spoke to the buyer and explained to him the software we built, the use cases that that was handling, that it was capable of. He'd then um, done googled me on watched some youtube videos of me being interviewed and there was one interview in particular which was a, like a trusted third party i think a, some, a friend of mine but also a connection of, of the buyers where he trusted his opinion right. and he heard this kind of interview back and forth which i think demonstrated a degree of technical expertise on our behalf on our side just in that conversation um and so when it came to due diligence it went look I was going to ask for a whole load of stuff, but I've watched your interview with such and such. You clearly know the stuff. If your business reflects you and what you know about this, and I can see it in your operating procedures that it appears to, I don't think there's anything else for me to check. And his, and his comment that followed up was, uh, is there anything you think I ought to ask you? <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> so, so technical due diligence was more or less just a, checkbox which made the whole thing really really smooth and but that sounds like it's based on the credibility that you'd established in the marketplace yeah. and the fact that yeah and here's a tip is that the fact that you're you've been interviewed and you know if someone searched you they could find your name and your your business name appearing quite readily and given yeah, which, which is ironic given that we were a white label agency behind the scenes I mean, for the first five years of our existence our only web presence was a website that said nothing to see here and had a login link underneath. And when anybody asked, it was, well, of course there's nothing to see. We're white label behind the scenes. We're not supposed to be found. And they go, oh, yeah. The real reason was on day one when I built the business, when I started the business, I couldn't build a website and didn't know how to do it. And I couldn't manage that. I couldn't afford the design, but um, it stayed for five years. As a, as a strategy. So, Rob, how many, um, how many buyers were in the mix? Uh, we had about four. Um, who were who went seriously showing an interest i would have liked to have made the competition bigger um and made it more competitive um and one of the things we agreed with our broker was look, I, look so one of the other things with our broker was said look we're connected in this industry in the same way you are um if we if we introduce a potential buyer then we'll want the we want the fee reduction as a result of that. You handle the process with them to, in terms of price, but you get a, you'll, you'll get an overall better price. But we want a fee reduction for the fact we've we've introduced the contact, um, and we agreed that in as it was. It was one of his who came through. I'd be lying if I said we didn't use them to leverage each other as you would do in any smart negotiation. Awesome. Okay, and and you mentioned a couple of times that you used the the broker. 
what was the what did you learn from from uh, working with the broker and going through the process? What were so for me, I have very low regard for brokers on the whole. I think the slice of pie taken relative to the work performed is disproportionate. Um, so you're starting from a position where I, I kind of don't like the people that I'm dealing with. How, so finding somebody I trusted in that space um, was good. I mean, we've looked, when we've gone through acquisitions and we've had, you know, people we've tried to acquire and sometimes successfully, sometimes not, the broker has often been more of a hindrance than a help in that process and often demonstrated a lack of understanding of the business they were even selling, which was, I found, staggering. Yeah. Um, in his instance, it was knowledgeable about our business. And the thing that he did best, I think, was constantly move the deal forward. You know, even if it was niche, he was constantly moving it forward. You know, he was the person who would go, I'll stay up late tonight, I'll make that call happen. I'll get up early tomorrow, I'll make that call happen. I'll do this, I'll make it happen. And he was constantly pushing the cadence through. So the biggest thing for me was, I think for the buyer and, and I, having that kind of person pulling the strings of both of us going, come on, come on, come on, come on. When otherwise, I think deals sometimes can just wither and die in the vine. Yeah. Not because you don't want to do a deal, but because you get busy, you get distracted, the world gets in the way and the energy just kind of deflates out of like a balloon. And for me, that was what he brought to it. I think financially, I'm not sure it made a difference to the number that we got in terms of there was no clever strategy particularly deployed to drive the price up it was what feels fair and we came up with a number that felt fair i think okay yeah and the other you know what what you talk about is someone who's got their eye on the ball and driving it and negotiating it and the fact that they're well yeah they're um got skin in the game but they're not as attached as the owner and they're, yeah. they're attached to the process of the deal and making the deal work is um yeah, is, is a big value they bring. Yeah, as well when you as come well. down to the nitty gritty of the contract, it really helps um, because you, you know, you end up being a little bit more pragmatic about things sometimes. It's really easy to get so heavily bogged down in, you know, guarantees and the, and the structure and the format of the guarantee. Yep. And if you happen to invoke a guarantee, you're already in a really bad place. You know, if, if that's where you are, the world's already in trouble. It's easy to let those things break a deal. And we just made a point of, I think pragmatism was the key phrase throughout, I think. Yeah, and it sounds like also you're you're like that classic entrepreneur. One of, one of the things that stops a deal from proceeding is when the, the owner, the founder, is not sure what they're moving on to. And energetically, it, you know, based on things you were saying earlier, you'd already moved on and you were you were you know, all in that new camp. You know, this this deal was almost holding you back. So you wanted to do the right deal, you wanted to get a, a you know, the, the deal off into the right place, into the right choir. But energetically, you 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 knew what was next for you was, and it was already in play. Exactly. So, yeah. Ex exactly. So for me, there was a certain element of time pressure in that respect just to get it done. Um, okay. So, Rob, what were some of the other learnings? And I know that you've you've had some experience of doing deals in the past, but what else did you learn from the process that you can share? Because listeners are going, okay, so they're they're listening to our our conversation and they're they're pulling out some tips around you know preparing the business for exit, but some of the things that what what do you wish you knew at the beginning of the process so i think things that i think i wish i knew although it probably wouldn't have changed the first several years are they of the business are um don't build an agency 
um, is thing number one. They're not worth very much, but so there are far better ways to deploy time and capital and to make an exit value than an agency. If you do build an agency, make sure it's productized, make sure it's standard. But my, my argument is always build it as if you're going to sell it, even if you don't plan to sell it. Because apart from anything else, you have a damn sight nice business, well, a nicer business to run. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, build it for sale. And everything we do today, we treat everything we do today as if it's for sale. Nothing is, but if anybody wanted to walk through the door of our businesses today, we could give them everything they need by tomorrow morning, pretty much. And I think that's a nice philosophy to have that you're prepared. Um, I think as well, the one thing I would say is when you think, when you first have that thought about, I think I might need to sell this, that's the time to sell it. Because the minute you energetically check out of that business, bad things happen. I've watched it happen to my own business. I think if I'd sold it two years earlier, my personal exit would have quadrupled. Wow. That's a lot of money, a lot of money. Um, compared to where we sold and where we were, I think I would have somewhere between three and four X my personal exit. Wow. Um, part of that's business performance, parts of that, you know, shareholder structures and things, but I would have personally benefited three to four X. So I think the, and the moment you're mentally checking out, it's time to do it and just move on, get it done at that point. Don't wait. Cause it takes a long time. I mean, we first mooted the idea of exiting in April. I think we pulled the trigger in June. It then takes a few weeks to just to get your broker on side and agree terms with them. So you're three months in before anything's actually happened. And as you said at the start, we were quite quick. Yeah. I know we were quite quick. Um, so you, it's a long process. It, yeah, look, um, yeah, most you know, the average for, for most industries is allow a year. And, and then on top of that, we know that only 20% of businesses that go to market actually end up doing a deal. Yeah. So, so that's a year if you get a deal. Yeah, you know, so yeah, that that's why we're having the conversation is going, what did you do? What did you, what was special about your business that made And the other thing as well, which you're dead right about, and it's something I think I think is so important, and it's why I like what you're doing. Sellers need to understand that the deck is heavily stacked in favor of the buyer. Mm. You as a seller will probably sell once, maybe twice in a lifetime, unless you, it's something you do professionally, it's a rare event buyers often buy or at least investigate buy and go down a road of buying multiple times you're probably not the only thing they're looking at when they're buying yep. so in the information the comparatives the opportunities all that data even down to the legalese and the contracts your buy your buyers will have seen far more and negotiated far more than you ever do so if you go into that blind i had a conversation with somebody the other week and he said to me, he said, Robert, are you so? Can you just have a look at some things for me? Tell me what you think. So, what does that mean? I said, that means you're about to lose 20% lose of your exit value if you're not careful. He went, does it? Yeah, that's a bad thing. Oh, better get rid of that then. You know, it's, and I don't believe that's uncommon. I believe that by, you know, sellers are in a really information and experience weak position without the right kind of support. Yeah. So, get prepared, exit on your terms. Equalize the playing field by the sounds of it. Rob, I think that's all we've got time for today. Look, really appreciate your insights. Thanks for sharing. Pleasure. Thanks a lot.